0: Good to see all of you here. I know some of you have been gone for Christmas vacation, traveled to wherever—Florida, Africa—and not sure where all. But I think there was a lot of traveling done. And I hope you're not getting the uh, the post-vacation blues. But this morning, when I stepped out and saw the sunshine, I thought, you know, it's a good day to it's a good day to be alive. Sometimes winter times in Indiana get a little depressing, but. We're not going to let that affect our our time here this morning. Shall we bow our heads and pray. We are grateful, Father, for your mercies on us this morning. It's good to see sunshine, our hearts encouraged. Thank you, Lord, for all those who were gone and have returned and as we set forth on a, a new year and the challenges that will come the the unexpected journeys, the joys the sorrows, all those things Father as we As we move together as the body of Christ, Lord, just prepare us for what may come. Help us to be faithful to you and the things that we choose to do. And this morning in our worship, our desire is that you would come into this place, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. I pray that each person who is sitting here this morning would have an encounter with you. Thank you again for your mercies on us. We invite you here in Jesus' name. Amen. As you are likely aware, <clears throat> I've been preaching through a series that I would like to conclude this morning on the headship order, and I started off, before I began this series, I started off uh, feeling like we needed some teaching on the headship covering or the veiling, and as I started looking at the passage, I felt like it needs a bit of context and a bit of background. So that was, that's was that been my attempt on uh, the last three messages I've preached have, has been more uh, trying to lay a groundwork, and part of my maybe my uh, my burden, my concern was is why do why do we lose practices? why do we lose symbols at times? and I believe sometimes that can be just by neglect of teaching, maybe by not understanding and so my desire in, in this whole series has been to maybe bring understanding so this morning I will uh I'll confess to you right now that I, uh, this was a challenge for me to study, and I've been, I've been going all over with it, trying to organize it, trying to figure out how to, how to present this, and I just ask you to pray for me here as, as I go through this. Uh, a bit of a background on where we have been in this series so far. I began the series actually with, we're going to be reading uh, verses 11, uh, 1 to 16 in First Corinthians 11. I began the series with the first three verses initially. And stop there because that that began to introduce the idea of God's order, of headship. And so uh, the first message laid a bit of a foundation on on order, the creation order. Adam was created first. Eve was created second. Both of them were created in God's image, uh, were given free will. We know in the fall Eve was deceived, Adam was not. And yet God holds Adam responsible. So that was um, Paul referenced the creation order uh, when he talks about headship. He goes back to the beginning. So that was my attempt at the, in the first message was to establish the idea that God's headship order is anchored in Genesis. It's, it goes to the beginning and how God made it. A couple of things we looked at here about order and authority was uh, it provides an ordered structure for mankind to live and thrive within. And it is a visible display of the relationship with Christ and the church. Paul called it a great mystery. So not only is headship order functional, but it is also a witness of Christ and the church to the world. The second message focused on submission, which is ultimately the key to the headship order. Because without submission, you have several wills that come together that are irreconcilable. How do you move through conflict? Uh, That was the big idea of the second message. We see that with with Christ to his father. As he wrestles in the garden, he has to submit his will to his father's. And someday at the end of time, the scripture says that Christ is going to hand the kingdom back to his father and be subject unto him again. So submission is very much in the Trinity. How do I come under authority? That was a bit of the theme of the second message. The last one was uh, on marriage. The picture of Christ and His bride is the picture of the husband and the wife, as as we see in Ephesians chapter five. So, this headship order, this I've shown you this model several times, but the idea is is for this for this to work, uh, the head must have loving authority. It's never coercive. It's not harsh, and in return, there's a willing and a glad submission. From in the case of the marriage, it's the it's the woman to her husband, and that is so much a picture of how Christ relates to his bride, the church. Christ nurtures us. He cares for us. He gave himself up for us. That's what husbands are supposed to do for their wives. And in turn, their wives submit to them and respect and honor them. So that's a little bit where we've been. So now, this morning, I want to look at the actual symbolism. And there are multiple things in the Scripture where there is symbolism. Uh, The headship veiling or covering is one of them. There is, um, the second half of this passage talks about the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of symbolism there. One thing I find interesting is that the church at large has not dropped communion or the Lord's Supper. It's acknowledged as being a, a sign. And yet, for some reason, the headship covering has kind of gone out of, uh, out of style, if you want to say it that way. Uh, just as a background, it is interesting if you, if you study this topic and look through history it's only recently that most churches have dropped the headship covering, probably within the last hundred years. So when when we talk about this in a historical way, um, it's not that we have to fully appeal just back to the New Testament era, but it had been the practice of the church for centuries. And with different movements uh, in the world within the last century or so, this has largely gone away. Now, probably many applications of this were primarily just for Sunday morning worship, I know our practice here is that our women cover their heads all the time in public, and we may talk about some of those issues along the way here. To give you a setting for this passage, um, I want to read it here in just a little bit, and if you, if you could, open your Bibles to that. I'm not going to have that on the screen this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to be reading 1 to 16. So, Corinth. Corinth is located, as I understand it, in, in southern Greece. Now, this is an old map, um, Beverly could probably give us better instruction on Greece and all those things. But I'm just looking at a a map that's representative, I believe, of of Bible times, New Testament times. And if you notice here, Corinth is is right here on this this southern part of Greece. Across that little isthmus there, or or land bridge, you have Athens over there. And I found it interesting. Here's a little bit of a zoomed-in view. So the city of Corinth, right in this area, was very close to this... Land bridge. Now, if you would go around the southern part of this landmass by ship, it would be, I think, at least 200 miles. And it says that to the south of here, it was treacherous seas. And so boats would come up here uh, from either direction. They'd come right up here, and there was no, there was no uh, canal. There was a canal put in there in the 1800s. That's very recent. That's about a four-mile land bridge. So boats would come up to here. Large boats would unload and put all their goods on carts and have them pulled across and reloaded on the other side. Small boats, they would actually lift the boat out, and I don't know, through a series of, of runners and logs and slaves, I don't know how they did it, they'd actually pull the boats across, and it actually saved them a lot of time and a lot of money. And so you can imagine this area uh, was, a very, was, a, was a very busy place because of all the shipping that was going through there. So you have Corinth off to the side. And so that was a very, a, a very, um, I would say, a busy city, a very prosperous city. Um, there's some mixed, maybe some mixed information that comes out of that era, but it, we'll get into that in a little bit. But I just want to give you a bit of an idea of where this is. So the Apostle Paul comes to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and he starts to teach, starts to preach in the synagogues, and he's preaching to the Jews and the Greeks. And in Acts chapter 18, the, it says that the Jews, they start to to blaspheme him, or they, they they oppose him, so Paul finally takes his garment, he shakes the thing off, and he says, "Your blood is on you. Your blood is on your own heads, Jews. I'm going to the Gentiles." And so here in Corinth, Paul begins trying to reach the Jews. He drops it, and he exclusively goes to the Gentiles. Now he's here for about a year and a half. So that's at least on his first time there. I'm not sure when this uh, letter was written. So the the church that this is addressed to is most likely. A fully Gentile church, all right, so there's not necessarily Jews, so this instruction is given to a Gentile church. Let's read this passage, and I would like if you are free without a child on your lap or you're not incapacitated to please stand as we read God's word this morning. I'm going to read this in the King James. If you have the King James Version available, um, read it with me out loud. We're going to be begin in verse one down through verse 16, altogether. "Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ." Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonored his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you? that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Thank you. You may be seated. As I went through this passage, um, I was was attempting to see some of the common uh, words that are in the passage. Um, where where is the disputes about the passage? Because clearly, uh, much of the Christian world today says that this is a cultural issue or it's not necessary for today. So how did we get there as Anabaptists? And there's not, it's not just Anabaptists. There is a, there's a growing head-covering movement going on in, in the world. Uh, there's websites on it. There's, there's research you can do. So I know this hasn't completely fallen off the, the, uh, the Christian practice. But why is it so easily... Um, ignored, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to make a brief comment here on, on biblical interpretation. As I was as I was looking through this, one of the common reasons that people say this is is cultural is because of the situation in Corinth. Now I already described to you a little bit what's happening there, and it is said that in Corinth it was a very uh, it was a city full of prostitutes, pagan prostitutes. And one of the reasons that the women veiled themselves was to differentiate themselves from prostitutes. So what has been said, and you'll see this in many commentaries, is that the prostitutes had uncovered heads or they had shaved heads. And that's why Christian women, you know, Paul tells them, cover your head so you're not mistaken for a prostitute. Well, <clears throat> it sounds logical. It, it maybe makes some sense. I just want to make a comment here, though, uh, as we approach this passage. This is by R.C. Sproul. And this is what he said when we were approaching uh, interpreting the scriptures. He says, It is one thing to seek a more lucid understanding of the biblical content by investigating the cultural situation of the first century. It is quite another to interpret the New Testament as if it were merely an echo of the first century culture. For example, with respect to the hair covering issue in Corinth, Numerous commentators state the reason why Paul wanted women to cover their heads was to avoid a scandalous appearance of Christian women in the external guise of prostitutes. Well, What is wrong with this kind of speculation? The basic problem here is that our reconstructed knowledge of first century Corinth has led us to supply Paul with a rationale that is foreign to the one he gives himself. In a word, we are not only putting words into the apostle's mouth, we are ignoring words that are there. If Paul merely told women in Corinth to cover their heads and gave no rationale for such instruction, we would be strongly inclined to supply it via our cultural knowledge. In this case, however, Paul provides a rationale which is based on an appeal to creation, not to the custom of Corinthian harlots. We must be careful not to let our zeal for knowledge of the culture obscure what is actually said. To subordinate Paul's stated reason to our speculatively conceived reason is to slander the apostle... And turn exegesis into eisegesis, which he's basically saying, when we, when we look at the scriptures, exegesis is, is looking at the scripture, finding the meaning, and interpreting it according to the text. Eisegesis has more the idea of the interpreter or the translator taking his idea of something and imposing it onto the text. So I wanted to, I wanted to give that as a bit of a background. This is one of the signs in the scripture where he actually, within the passage, gives the reasons for why this is to be done. That's why I think it's 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 dangerous for us to call something cultural and just ignore it when Paul gives different reasons than what maybe is often so just give give you that as a bit of a background here. couple uh words I would like to emphasize here i I don't want to say emphasize I want to draw attention to maybe more that they need explanation um the first word here, and this this is going to be hard for some of you to read so I put it up here, maybe for my own benefit, I'm not sure. Uh, The word head, we see as we read in the passage here this morning, the word head is used multiple times. I think I counted up, two, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, about nine times in this passage. And the same Greek word is used for head, but it's clearly two different meanings. So like we started out in verse three, when it says that the head of the man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Clearly that is an authority head. But he uses that exact same word when he says, if the woman be not covered, uh, let her be shorn. I'm sorry, it's, it's before that. If a, woman, if a man has his head covered. So the, the same word head is used, whether it's the physical head or the, the order, head. Um, I thought that was interesting. I'm not sure why. I think, I think we can take a common reading of this and understand which he's talking about. That was the first word I wanted to, to uh, just draw out. The word is used in verses three, four, five, six, seven, and then verse 10. The second word, and that one there's not maybe very controversial. The second word is the word covered, which the Greek word is katakalupto. Many of you have already heard that term. That word uh, means to cover holy, to veil, or to hide. That's the main term that we, we understand, meaning a specific cloth covering, something that goes over the head. And we see that used several times in verses four through, through seven. So it says, using this word, it says, if the man has something on his head, he dishonors his head. Now, going back to the two meanings of head, I think it could go both ways. So if the man dishonors his head, he may dishonor himself, but I think he also dishonors his head, who is Christ. If the woman prays or prophesied with her head, physical head uncovered, says she dishonors her head which could be the man, but it could also dishonor herself. So I'm not sure why the same word is used, but it is what it is. I think we can make sense out of that. So this use of the word cover is is something added. It is a covering, something put over. Uh, Further down in the passage, we have the word covering, down in verse 15. And I know sometimes that brings us a bit of confusion when we're reading this in an English text. Verse 15 says, if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. So the rationale is, well, if the woman's hair is given her for a covering, then that should be sufficient. Isn't the woman's hair her covering? Well, this is a different word. This word covering is parabolian. Uh, The meaning for that, this is Strong's Concordance, something thrown around a mantle, veil, covering, or vesture. So in this case, the covering literally is her hair. God has given her hair for her head and it calls it her glory in this passage. So sorry guys, uh, women are the glory of creation. their hair is a glory to them. they are more beautiful than men and and God calls them this is this actual covering that he gives them the natural covering God God refers to it as her glory so. Going back to the argument, well, is that the covering? God uses it as a covering, but if you go back into verse 6, I think verse 6 is kind of the verse that helps us differentiate between the two. Paul uses the rationale. He says, if the woman be not covered, in other words, if she doesn't have something on her head, then she should also be shaved. Her hair should be cut off. Well, follow the logic. If, if the covering is her hair, is Paul saying, well, if she doesn't have her covering her hair, then cut off her hair, which is not, is not there. And You understand the difference. So in verse 6, if the hair is the covering, it doesn't make sense what he's saying. So his rationale is, is if you're not going to cover the glory, which is her hair, then you may as well cut it off. Because it would be, a, it would be a, and we know that's a shame. So he says it, it would be a disgrace to cut off her hair, which is her glory, so cover it. Hope you understand the difference there. So clearly the first part of the passage The covering is the katakalupta, which is a a putting over of of a veil or a cloth. And the last covering is the natural, what God has given to a woman, her natural hair. Another uh, word I want to point out this morning, I want to reference a little bit, is when it talks about nature. Uh, In this passage, I already said that Paul has referred to the creation order as he explains this, but he also appeals to nature. Uh, Further down, he says, verse 14, doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. He uses both the word nature and the word shame, which I think I actually have shame here as well. Nature and shame. Now this shame here is different than the shame that is applied to the woman earlier on. Remember it says if the woman, if it's a shame for her to be you know, shorn, well then cover your head. This is a different shame. In fact, this shame is, is the same as what Paul, Romans, when he was talking in Romans chapter 1 about how men have, they, they basically started worshiping the, the, uh, the creature instead of the creator, and their, their affections became vile, and they started lusting against each other, and it's the story of homosexuality is what it is. But in there, uh, Paul says that God gave them over to vile affections. He gave them over to shamefulness. Those vile affections, it's the same word as it says for a man to have long hair. that shame is the same shame as, as going down that path of homosexuality. So it's important to God that there is a difference between how the man and the woman are presented here. Now, I wanna, later I'll, I want to mention a little bit about culture. Well, what if your culture doesn't find it shameful? That's a question I want to bring up. But in this case, Paul is clearly, he's clearly tying the same type of meaning for a man having long hair as to the, the shamefulness of men going after men and some of the things that God let them do in Romans chapter 1 because they had rejected God. And then the last word I want to address here is the word power. Uh, Verse 10 talks about the woman having power on her head. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. I think this is an interesting concept. I wish it would explain more here, but it doesn't. It just mentions this. But the word power is the word exousia, and there is a passage, there's a, there's a lot of uses of this in the New Testament, but as you read through the Gospels, every time you see this word, it's often Jesus uh, exercising power or authority, either in healing or over demons or, or what may it be. And um, here, in, I just gave one, I have one example scripture to refer to for this word, exousia Luke 4.36, this is after Jesus had just done something amazing. It says, They were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What word is this? For with authority, that's that word, and power, which is dunamis. You've all heard of that word, that dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. For with authority and power, he commanded the unclean spirits, and they come out. So that's been attributed to Jesus numerous times in the New Testament. He has authority, and here it it refers that same authority to the woman having a sign of authority on her head. All right, so I didn't want to, I'm sorry, I don't want to get in the weeds too much on these words. I wanted to point out a few words that I think are significant as you're reading through this passage, and depending how you, how you define them, it can make a difference where you, where you come out on it. As I was going through this, um, I, was, I was trying to think about what are some of the, the questions that arise about this. Now, I'm very grateful to be living in a church and be part of a, part of a community that has accepted this practice. And I've been trying to imagine what would it be like to be preaching this to a church that doesn't believe in this. What are the arguments you address? Like, what are the oppositions? What are the the questions that arise? And so I had some of my own my own questions as I went through this. What would be reasons to not do this? And so I'm just going to briefly go through some of these questions, and maybe it'll help you think about or address some of the questions you may have had, Uh, especially you young women, you young ladies that. Maybe haven't um, had a chance to hear much teaching on this yet. One of the first questions I have here, there again, I'm sorry about the small print if you're in the back. Were Paul's instructions for women to cover their heads in prayer and prophesying and men to uncover their heads simply a cultural practice? I already briefly addressed this, uh, that that's what is said, that often it's said that the reason was because of prostitution and trying to um, differentiate them. Um, it seems a little bit unlikely to me that this was simply cultural, especially uh, Corinthian culture. The question could be asked, well, which culture are you talking about? You have Greek culture, you have Roman culture, you have Jewish culture, you have a lot of culture represented in Corinth. So for us to simply say, well, this was just something you know, specific to the Corinthians is a little bit uh, ambiguous or it's a bit vague. Um, also, at the beginning of this passage... When Paul first introduces this in verse 2, he says, I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. Now, as I understand the ordinances or the traditions, it would indicate to me that Paul has been teaching this everywhere already. This is not just a specific teaching to Corinth, but these ordinances is what is being taught in the churches. And you also see that in the last verse of our passage when he says, we have no such custom. Now, the King James says we have no such custom. That's actually a direct translation, but I think the meaning is we have no other custom, and this is what has been taught in the churches of God. So what Paul is introducing to them is very likely countercultural. I don't think Paul is teaching this to try to help them deal with just current situations in Corinth, like you know we're going to do opposite of prostitutes or whatever, but he's saying, no, this is what the churches of God are doing and it has. I think if Paul was was saying, was teaching this, to help them understand that you need to be different than your culture, I think he would have said that because he gives about five different reasons, and I want to, I want to hit on those here in a little bit. So I don't believe this is simply a cultural practice. Uh, one other reason why this is probably not cultural is if you look down in verse sixteen, Paul anticipates opposition. He said, "If any man seem to be contentious," so if there are those in. I think he expected that some are going to say, no, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't, how, this isn't how Christians should do. Paul basically says, this is how the churches of God are doing it. So I don't believe this is specifically a cultural issue for that particular place. Another question that may arise and did for me was, wasn't this teaching of covering women's heads to differentiate, differentiate them from prostitutes with shaved and uncovered heads? I already addressed that. Uh, third question here, was this teaching unique to Corinth was this a new teaching for the Christian Church, or was it Jewish custom? I already indicated, I believe, according to the passage, the other churches were were teaching this as well. Uh, one thing is, as I was trying to figure out Jewish custom, uh, I, I would, I would, my answer to that would be, clearly, Paul had already left the Jews in Corinth because they weren't listening to him. So I don't know that there's a Jewish pressure in the church here to do this, or that try, that Paul's trying to say, you know, here's the practice of the Jews. Let's make sure we because uh, that's already addressed elsewhere in the New Testament where he says not to bring uh, more of a burden on the Gentiles, um, even circumcision, d- different things, were not to be uh, required of the of the Gentiles. So I don't believe this is a Jewish, necessarily a Jewish custom that he's trying to impose here, and I don't believe it's unique to Corinth. Um, many of you probably are aware that today, uh, especially Orthodox Jews, will wear a head covering, and I was trying to do some research on that because I was wondering, well, does that Jewish custom go back into the the Old Testament you know did Jewish men cover their heads and this is kind of the opposite of that and I it's not real clear to me it seems like some of that practice actually is, is post New Testament the covering of, of the head now there were times you'll find it in the Bible of course priests covered their heads there's there's numerous places where heads were covered but not not specifically that they needed to for worship um, so I feel like this isn't necessarily a, a Jewish thing um, anything in the Jewish custom here. Another question, what about long hair for men or shorn hair for women? What if my local culture doesn't view it as shameful or disgraceful? So the reason I asked this question was, okay, we argue and say that, you know, Paul says if, if it's a shame for a woman to have her head shaved, well, then she should cover it. Well, what if you say, well, my culture, it's not shameful. We see that, we're starting to see that more and more. Women cut their hair very short, or I've seen shaved women. Um, what about long hair on men? And that's culturally acceptable. Are we really going to say that that it's a shame if your culture is is okay with it? Is that what is that what the um, <clears throat> what we go by? I would again reference you to what Paul says here about the man, especially that long hair being shameful, and comparing it to men going a different way than nature and lusting after one another. And so his Paul's appeal to nature is one of a natural order, and somehow in nature, um, it's even natural. I think. I mean, of course, men can grow long hair, but even 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 naturally, women will grow longer, thicker, fuller hair. Men can grow long hair, but it's not the same. Even even nature would teach us that it's not the same. I don't know how they went about cutting hair back in in this time, but it seems pretty clear to me that it was expect, expected that the men cut their hair at some point. So. Whether it was, you know, like all the films show this long shoulder length hair or different, either way, it seems like for the women it was natural length and for the men it was cut. That's, that's how I would differentiate the two. Men cut their hair, women left it natural length because obviously not all women have the same length of hair. So what, how do you determine what is long? I think natural length is a, is a safe way to go with that. Uh, another question I want to bring up here, Does the size of the head covering and veiling matter? And this gets a little bit more into our own practice. And I know sometimes um, the way we've done things here, I know for some can be a bit of a a burr under the saddle. That's okay. I'm not not ashamed of that. Um, How do we go about talking about this covering? So it basically says her head is to be covered. What is sufficient? What is insufficient? What are principles that we go by? I just want to give a quote here from a, a little booklet written by Linford Bonshager. I think he goes to Woodlawn, but he wrote a book some time ago, a little booklet on this, on this subject, and I think it's, it's a fair point, and I want you to listen to this. It says, it is important that we understand that in veiling or covering the hair, it is the covering of the woman's hair or her head that is the symbol, not the piece of cloth itself. Do you understand the difference? The symbolism, we might say, well, that cloth, that, that what we see visible, that's the symbol. But as Paul, and I think he's right, as Paul lays it out, the symbolism is the covered head. It's not specifically the cloth, it's the covered head. For the man, it's the uncovered head. And it talks about the issue of glory, which I'll get into that here in a little bit. So <clears throat> this calls for a veiling of sufficient size to be able to create the symbol. So maybe it's it's a it's a practical question, and I know I know we've had you uh, we know we have a guideline about this. Now some feel like, well, why do we have to be so specific? Maybe the weakness of a guideline is we we look at the minimum, you know, what's minimum, and then we kind of base off of that. But it's a it's a fair question. So if the symbol is the woman's head is to be covered, and, and the angels see that, and God sees that, um, maybe a, maybe just a challenge to you ladies would be this. So when you cover your head. Look in the mirror and just ask yourself the question, is my head covered? Is it covered? It's a visible sign. If, if you look in the mirror and you can't see the visible sign, maybe it's a fair question to ask, well, am I covered? Now, I'm not going to say no hair can be covered. I don't think that's necessarily um, what is stated here, but I believe if, if this covering of the head is the sign, then cover the head. That's about as, as simple as I want to make it. Another question that may come up. Which style of covering is best? <clears throat> is that a discussion that needs to be had? Uh, I mentioned before, there is, a, there is a movement of head covering. There's actually a website, uh, the head covering movement. And I was, I was doing some research there and, and just some things I had to say. And, and here's, here's a, uh, what I thought maybe was a good point on this. It says, the Bible says that a woman's long hair is her glory. When she covers her head while worshiping, her glory is supposed to be veiled. So it's back to the point of when are you, when are you sufficiently covered? Well, if the hair is the glory, it's her glory because God gave it to her, and it's her beauty, and he says to cover that, what does it take to do that? Is it supposed to hide it? I think it says it's supposed to hide this glory. So a question a woman may honestly ask herself is this, is my covering accentuating or veiling my glory? Some coverings may be better categorized as a hair accessory, which calls attention to the hair rather than a covering, which veils it. And I think it's fair to say, too, there are no commands which would dictate the color or design of the covering, but maybe there's two scriptures we could appeal to that would give some direction to the issue. Uh, in first Timothy two, nine and ten, this is Paul again talking about more about dress. He says, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And then 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I think the principle here is when he's talking about the way to present yourself in dress. He, he's, giving a, he's giving a foundation for, it's not about adornment, it's not about showing off through costly clothing or all these different things. So if you take the same principle into, what kind of a covering should I have? I think it's clear that it's meant to be a specific, it's a veiling, it's not, it's not just a, it's not a stocking cab, it's not a bill cab, it's not something that simply functions as a covering, but it's specific. I think it's fair to, to make that application. According to Paul and Peter, women are to dress modestly, discreetly, and should let their internal adornment be what's on display. So how do you apply this to choosing a veiling? I think, like I said, the application would be that it's something that it's maybe distinctive, but not overly ostentatious or attention drawing. The spirit of the command is to veil your glory, not to accentuate it. Modesty and discreetness does not mean frumpy or devoid of beauty but it also does not call attention to itself. So it doesn't mean, women, that you have to make yourself look as unattractive as possible in the practice of this. But I think that you're taking, um, I think when your desire is to honor God and when your desire is, God, how can I do this in a way that pleases you? I think that's a good, that's a good measure, is doing this in a way that draws attention and honor to God. So I want to bless you, uh, ladies for you that, that have done this well. And one last question. Oh, two last. I have two last questions. When should a woman cover her head? Um, specifically mentions praying and prophesying. Uh, I think it's interesting that over historically, I think many times the head covering was especially used in Sunday worship, which is kind of interesting um, because other scriptures, 1 Corinthians uh, fourteen, I believe, talks about women being silent in the churches, not not preaching or teaching to men in particular, and so if if the only time that women are to cover is in the worship service, it seems like that's maybe the one time they're not to be prophesying. And yet here it says, clearly when they pray or prophesy, and elsewhere it talks about women prophesying, which would seem to me that, well, if it's not happening in public worship, it's gonna be happening day to day and elsewhere. So it seems sensible to me that a woman would cover her head at all times when she is um, able to, to do that, to speak. And then the last one here, is this a salvation issue? And I don't even like my own question. I already mentioned this before, but in in light of of scriptural principles and and when there's things that we're attempting to follow God in, is this the question to be asking? In a marriage, again, so much of this this whole concept goes back to the idea of headship, husbands, wives, and marriage. In a marriage do you husbands live tight along the line of divorce in your marriage? I'll do as much as I can. I'll I'll get as close to cheating on my wife as I can. I'm gonna be right on that line and somehow we expect to have a a successful marriage. Well, we would say that's ridiculous. I would say the same is true in our relationship with God. Um, I'm not here to say a woman that's not covered is gonna go to hell. Uh, I I think it matters a lot on teaching and conscience. But I would also say... It's not the benchmark for what we choose to do and how we follow God. But our desires are, God, what can I do that pleases you? And if this is what I think the scripture says, this is what I'm going to do. So for what it's worth, these are just a few observations and thoughts that I had. And I'd like to to bring this together now. I, I mentioned it. I feel like there's five specific reasons here. So already I talked about not ascribing to culture, something that is a principle. And... Paul, I think, gives enough definition in this passage to say why he's teaching this. So here I have what I call five key issues in 1 Corinthians 11. The first one is distinct gender roles. Uh, We already saw that in verse three, when when he lays out the headship order. That is is an appeal back to the creation order. And clearly the lines fall between men and women. Men uncover in worship and, and prophecy, women cover. So it's clearly... God shows that distinction just like it was way back in the beginning. So a woman to be covered, it does it, it is a distinctiveness of her gender. It's saying that she is a woman, she's under God, and she has, she's chosen to accept that place that God has placed her in. Her head covering is symbolizing that she has accepted God's order and her place under her head. She's married, her head is her husband. So to veil... She's, she's showing that distinctive place as, as a woman in God's kingdom. So it gives that distinctiveness. We see that already in verse 3 and as the passage unfolds. The second issue I think we see here in the passage is the issue of, of glory and of honor. And that was in verses about 4 through 7. A man with an uncovered head dishonors his head, which is Christ, a woman who prays or prophesies with an uncovered head dishonors her head, which is her husband, and it's a shame, as if she were shaven. Now, I've heard the reasoning before. This is years ago, but uh, someone from our, from our background that had left um, Anabaptism and cut the hair and, and rejected the veiling, the argument was as well, my husband, it's, it's not a, he doesn't have a problem with it. And as, as my head, he says it's not a shame. He doesn't mind as, as her head, and so therefore it's okay. Um, I feel like that's a bit of shaky ground here because even the husband has his head, which is Christ. So I think we need to be careful with some of those arguments. Um, but it is an issue here. Like we said before, her glory, the, woman is, is, or the, the man is the image and glory of God. I think that refers back to even Adam being the, the first man, first created. He's in the image and glory of God. And when God creates Eve, he brings Eve alongside Adam as a, as a helper, but she's not mentioned as being, as she is in the image of God, but she's not the glory of God, she's the glory of the man. She's his pride and joy, as it were. Uh, anytime you see a, uh, a young couple, and uh, you know, a newly married couple, you know, every, every husband is just, he's just the proudest man around when he gets married, he's got this beautiful bride, and, and it's his glory so for every man, the woman is, is his glory, and he says that here. She is the glory of man. So when, when worship is happening, as I'm seeing it here, the symbolism is that when man is praying uncovered, he's displaying God's glory, since the man is the glory of, image of God. The woman is being covered because man's glory is to be covered in worship. Hope that makes sense to you. Man is uncovered because he represents God, his glory, Woman is covered because she represents the glory of man. And so God is to be the one that's glorified and honored in prayer and in prophecy. Third one here, another issue is the angels. We see that in verses, uh, in verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Uh, Many translations say a sign of authority for the word power. She ought to have this sign of authority on her head because of the angels. And I I think uh, the beginning of the verse there says for this cause, meaning what was just said prior. Well, in verses 8 and 9, it says the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. That's literally how it was done. The woman was created out of the man's side. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. There again, it's the created order. For this cause, she should have a sign of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, I can, I can speculate here a little bit about what this may mean. One, one of the things that comes to mind, I think Lyle may have used this scripture when he talked about the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, I'm just jumping into the middle of that passage. It says, this is talking about the church, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there, Paul is teaching that the church, as it's as its experienced redemption and as it works together as the body of Christ, is actually a witness to the heavenly beings. The angels do not understand redemption. They can't experience it. Now, there is no redemption for angels. Those that fell away from God could not be restored. Those that are... are still faithful to God, didn't experience the fall. They don't quite get it. And so throughout the ages, it says that the principalities and powers are are watching the church and are marveling at this whole thing of redemption. And if you if you understand that, I kind of wonder if it's not part of that whole experience. Because of the angels, as they watch, and they see the woman covering her head and the man uncovering his head, and they say, this is God's order, being dis- it's on display, this is God's order on display. And when you go back to the fall, when, when Satan, through the serpent, comes to Eve, and he, he deceives her, and that the order gets messed up, and, but the, yet God holds Adam responsible. When a woman covers her head, she's basically saying, I choose to accept God's order, which, which goes way back to the beginning. And it's a rebuke to Satan, because Satan was the one, he's the father of lies, he's the one who came and try to disrupt God's plan, his perfect plan. And part of God's perfect plan is order and that headship. And for a woman to cover herself, it's a testimony. I don't quite get it all, but it's a testimony to the angels. I believe both good and bad. It's a rebuke to Satan. It's a rebuke to his demons. But it's also a sign, I think, to God's angels. And I believe there is, there is power there. Now, I'm not saying that a woman who's covered can't be touched. There are times when covered women, you know, violence still happens to them. But there are also many testimonies and stories how there is a power there that when on display, uh, there's an additional sense of of security and of of that power to cry out to God that has has brought protection. So I think there's, there's something here that's important. But Paul uses this as one of the reasons why the woman covers her head and why it's not simply a cultural experience. He says it's because of the angels and as a witness to them, and they see this. And they take note. Uh, One other issue here, I already talked about this some, was hair length. Um, In this passage, it taught that the covering that God gave the woman, her glory, is the long hair. I think it's the natural length here. It's her beauty. It's her glory. And Paul said if she's not willing to cover that glory, up in the first part there where he says uh, in verse 5, 5 and 6, Paul is saying up there, if she's not willing to hide that glory then she should cut off her hair. That glory that God gave her, if she's not willing to cover it, then she should be shaven because it's a disgrace for her to pray or prophesy uncovered. So this hair length, specific to the woman, is also part of of Paul's approach in teaching this. I think it's something that's still relevant today. A woman's long hair is still her glory. And the only outcome, according to verse 6, if she's not willing to cover her head, was that she should shave her head. And then the last one here, what I'm calling the universal practice of the church. I mentioned this this concept before, and that is the fact that I don't believe this began in Corinth. This practice began in Corinth. Uh, Paul brought to them the ordinances, like he said there. And if you follow this passage further down when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he also mentions the Lord's Supper as being an ordinance that I delivered unto you. So, the, the things that Paul was teaching, the tradition in the Christian church. He brings them communion. He says, here's the ordinance. He brings them the headship covering. He says, this is the ordinance that I'm delivering unto you. So it was a, it's a practice of, of the church, not just of Corinth. And I believe, specifically in verses 4 and 5, he says, every man praying or prophesying Verse 5, every woman, and I think that every man and every woman carries beyond that culture to today. I think the command is clearly meant for us yet today. There's probably questions you may have about this passage. Um, This is where I want to end it for today. One other thing I want to say about how we handle some of these things. There may be some here that still question the practice. You know, how do we are we really sure that this is still for today? And it's going back to this idea of, of principles and customs. I think it's very easy for us to look at the New Testament sometimes, and we see these things. Maybe it's, maybe it's things like the holy kiss. And, and for our culture, that would be distasteful. And we say, well, that must have been cultural. And there's other practices. Uh, this is, again, something from R.C. Sproul. It's not a quote necessarily, but it's something I heard him say in, in regard to this issue. And he basically said it like this, if we take a principle from Scripture and we treat it as a custom, we sin against God. On the other hand, if we take what was a custom, and maybe we're not sure, if we take what is a custom and we treat it like a principle... His comment was, we're being overly scrupulous. In other words, maybe we're overly sensitive in conscience. But which way would we want to err? I'm just saying this as an appeal to how we interpret the Scriptures. It's important that we don't simply negate things in the Bible and say, oh, that's just for back then. We're not, you know, if, if we're unclear between custom or culture and principle, which way should we err? Which way should we err on? And I believe this is one of the passages where Paul defines it within the passage. He gives the reasons why. I don't think we have to question this passage and say, well, it goes back then. This is a specific one where, where Paul talks about. He talks about the, the genders, the headship order. He talks about the glory, the honor, the dishonor, the angels, and, and all those issues there. <clears throat> so I think this one is one that's, that's fairly uh, self-explained. But I just want to challenge us as we, as we look into the Scriptures on issues that we have... A willingness to say, well, if it's, if it's vague, which way, which way should we err? On the side of principle or on the side of, of customer culture? I want to just close and I want to bless you women for covering your heads. And I know many times, and it was a little bit my concern in preaching about this was, I don't want to preach about this and, and, and simply zero in on the women because it's not merely a women's issue. There's clear instructions here for the men and how men should approach worship there's clear instructions for us as men and how, um, how we function in this order of headship. We are like Christ in the headship order, which means we're supposed to be willing to, to give ourselves up, be willing to die to ourselves. If you're married, you're supposed to lay down your life for your wife, love her, cherish her, just like Christ does the church. And the inverse is also true in this headship order. As, as, as the husband and as the authority lovingly exercises his authority, the response of the wife and woman is to, to willingly and gladly submit. So that's the background of all this. And so I would encourage us. It's a beautiful picture. I believe it's a beautiful picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And when we're willing to adopt the symbols as well, like the head covering, um, it also displays, not necessarily just to the world, but to the principalities and powers, and it displays it to each other as Christians that we are choosing to do things God's way, and that's the commitment we're making is to follow the scriptures in the best way that we know how. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Father, I just pray that you would take whatever was said this morning and whatever needs to be forgotten, Lord, may it be forgotten, and the principles that remain, Father, I pray that they would um, become a deeper part of our own belief system, our own understanding. Father, I pray for each of us this morning, if we still have uh, if we don't understand or struggle to understand lord show us we believe your holy spirit is there and willing to open your eyes or open our eyes to truth if we are willing to say yes we'll do whatever you say and father i just want to thank you for this practice of the visible sign of the headship order thank you lord for the commitment of our women who have displayed this in their in their public lives and and are willing to um, be identified as your children and in, their, in the order that you've placed them in. Lord, help all of us to have just a deeper commitment to be identified with you, to be unashamed of these things, especially to be unashamed of the signs that may make us look different than our culture. And help us realize and remember, Lord, that we are part of a, a larger church culture of, of the ages past who has been willing to say, yes, we're going to do this God's way, and we're willing to, to be different than the world. And I just want to thank you again for your your mercies. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to give us inspiration and understanding. In Jesus' name we pray.